Okay, good morning, <clears throat> good afternoon, <clears throat> good evening. Uh, just after 4 p.m. here in the UK. It's the 24th of February, I think. I could be wrong, but I think it's the 24th. 2022. I definitely know this 2022. It's definitely February. The date is always a puzzle to me. But uh, uh, welcome to the room, Raccoon 6. Um, I'm going to play some some bits and pieces from the UK news. So I've got a piece lined up that's Boris Johnson's most recent statement on the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I'm just going to play one or two things. If you want to jump on and have a chat, we can do that after I've played the clips. So I'm quite happy for people to, to jump on. But I want to get through these clips first if at all possible. Shortly after four o'clock this morning, I spoke to President Zelensky of Ukraine to offer the continued support of the UK because our worst fears have now come true and all our warnings have proved tragically accurate. President Putin of Russia has unleashed war in our European continent. He's attacked a friendly country without any provocation and without any credible excuse. Innumerable missiles and bombs have been raining down on an entirely innocent population. A vast invasion is underway by land, by sea, and by air. And this is not in the infamous phrase, some faraway country of which we know little. We have Ukrainian friends in this country, neighbors, co-workers, Ukraine is a country that for decades has enjoyed freedom and democracy and the right to choose its own destiny. We and the world cannot allow that freedom just to be snuffed out. We cannot and will not just look away. It's because we've been so alarmed in recent months of Russian intimidation that the UK became one of the first countries in Europe to send defensive weaponry to help the Ukrainians. Other allies have now done the same, and we will do what more we can in the days ahead. Today, in concert with our allies, we will agree a massive package of economic sanctions designed in time to hobble the Russian economy. And to that end, we must also collectively cease the dependence on Russian oil and gas that for too long has given Putin his grip on Western politics. Our mission is clear. Diplomatically, politically, economically, and eventually militarily, this hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. And so I say to the people of Russia, whose president has just authorized a tidal wave of violence against a fellow Slavic people, as the parents of Russian soldiers who will lose their lives, I cannot believe this is being done in your name, or that you really want the pariah status it will bring to the Putin regime. Now I say to the Ukrainians in this moment of agony, we are with you. We're praying for you and your families, and we are on your side. And if the months ahead are grim, and the flame of freedom burns low, I know that it will blaze bright again in Ukraine. 
Ukrainers for all his bombs and tanks and missiles. I don't believe that the Russian dictator will ever subdue the national feeling of the Ukrainians and their passionate belief that their country should be free. I say to the British people and all who have heard the threats from Putin against those who stand with Ukraine, we will, of course, do everything to keep our country safe. We're joined in our outrage by friends and allies around the world. We will work with them for however long it takes to ensure that the sovereignty and independence of Ukraine is restored. Because this act of wanton and reckless aggression is an attack not just on Ukraine. It's an attack on democracy and freedom in Eastern Europe and around the world. This crisis is about the right of a free, sovereign, independent European people to choose their own future. And that is a right that the UK will always defend. So there was a lot of rhetoric in that. It's an awful lot of rhetoric. And uh, there's a lot of rhetoric coming from Russia. So a lot of heightened emotional language, as you would expect in a, in a war situation. But what probably needs to happen is we need to tone the language down a little bit. Putin said that he wants to denazify Ukraine, which means a change in the political situation there. So what, he, what he's trying to do is, is change the government in Ukraine to something that isn't a Nazi government. Sounds like a perfectly reasonable aim to me, although the West doesn't acknowledge that there's a Nazi regime in Ukraine. Uh, but Putin obviously thinks that there is. So there's a difference of opinion there about what constitutes a Nazi regime. Uh, so we need, I need to look at that because I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, but if, if it is a Nazi regime, then it's legitimate that he would want to change it. Uh, I'll need to take a look and see what's happening and decide for myself whether it is or it isn't. And then I'll know whether it's a reasonable invasion or not. But until I know that, uh, I'm not going to take a, a position on it. I'm, I'm staying neutral because there's rhetoric from both sides and it needs to get sorted out diplomatically, if at all possible. I know there's some some bombing going on at the moment, but if, the, if we can negotiate a, a ceasefire and then talk about what needs needs to happen to keep us to maintain a ceasefire, um, I don't I don't think Putin's in there long term. I think he's in there short term to change the government. So he's going to withdraw at some point anyway. So any any movement on the western side on the uh, it's not really the western front we're on the western side of Ukraine uh, it's a Ukrainian fight because they're an independent nation they're not part of NATO but uh, obviously the west will be giving them diplomatic support as he said diplomatic support weaponry if they if they request it 
there just isn't likely to be to be troops on the ground from from near to I wouldn't have thought so it's going to have to be a diplomatic solution and economic sanctions based solution because I can't see NATO putting troops on the ground in there but then I wasn't expecting Russia to invade I wasn't expecting a full-scale invasion uh, so I'm not really want to to give advice about these things because I don't really understand the situation enough to be able to predict what's happening next uh, yet I might do at the end of a fortnight of doing research but at the moment I don't anyway let's have a look for, for another couple of clips and see what we can find here something short Will Russia go to war with Ukraine? All week, you've heard numerous answers to this question. In Ukraine, 71% of the people believe their country is already at war with Russia. This is a complex crisis. And all the answers are hit. This clip's from four days ago. So it puts it in a bit of context with a little bit of recent history. In, in history. Did you know there was a time when Kiev was more powerful than Moscow? There was also a time when Ukraine and America were adversaries. Tonight, we'll bring you all these stories. We will tell you why Russian President Vladimir Putin is obsessed with Ukraine. I'm Palki Sharma Upadhyay, and this is Gravitas Plus. We begin in the 9th century. There was a state called Kievian Rus. This is where it was located. The Slavic people lived here. The city of Kiev was their capital. Between 980 and 1015, the Kievan Rus was ruled by Grand Prince Volodymyr. In Russian, his name is Vladimir. In Ukrainian, Volodymyr. And as fate would have it, these are also the names of the presidents of these two countries today. Anyway, Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians draw their lineage from this Slavic state. A lot changed in the centuries that followed, and for a lot of it, Ukraine was under Russian rule. In the 1900s, the two were Soviet republics, Russia the most powerful of the 15 republics, and Ukraine the second most powerful. It had defense industries, large agricultural lands, and housed much of the Soviet nuclear arsenal. During the Cold War, Ukraine was the arch-rival of the United States. The Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. Ukraine became independent, as did Russia. Ukraine inherited much of Soviet nuclear arsenal, but gave it up to Russia in 1994. In exchange, Moscow guaranteed Ukraine's security and promised to respect its sovereignty. They signed the Budapest Memorandum along with these countries. Cut to November 2013, Viktor Yanukovych was the president of Ukraine. He had a reputation for heavy-handedness, corruption, and above all, for being openly pro-Moscow. In 2013, he rejected an EU trade deal. This deal... Cool. Let's have a look, see what's happened there. Would have meant greater integration with the European Union. Instead, Yanukovych decided to take a $15 billion bailout from Russia. To many Ukrainians, it felt like being sold to Moscow. So protests broke out. They were called Euromedan. Euro, because these protests were about Europe. And Medan, because they happened in Kiev's Medan. 
what we today know as the Independence Square. Here, protesters chanted, sign the EU deal, Yanukovych must step down. Russia supported the president, the West supported the protesters. In February 2014, Yanukovych's government was toppled, the president was driven out of Ukraine, he fled to Russia. Not every Ukrainian was happy with this. Many in the Russian-speaking East wanted Yanukovych to stay. When he was driven out, the minority felt disenfranchised. On the other side of the border, Russia was angry it had lost its puppet. To salvage the situation, Moscow annexed Crimea. Why Crimea? Well, let's now zoom into this part of the world. Crimea is a peninsula. It is located in the Black Sea. In 1954, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev transferred Crimea. It was given to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic from the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic. Why? Khrushchev hoped the transfer would strengthen, quote-unquote, brotherly ties between the Ukrainian and Russian people. Both Russia and Crimea were part of the Soviet Union. So this transfer did not mean very much. When Ukraine became independent in 1991, Crimea joined it. The peninsula was given special autonomy. It remained home to Russian military bases. Moscow promised to respect Crimean autonomy. Many in Russia were of the opinion that Crimea should not have been allowed to join Ukraine. In 2014, when Yanukovych was ousted from power in Ukraine, Russian military began seizing government buildings in Crimea. Soon the entire peninsula was under military occupation. A referendum followed. On the 16th of March 2014, Crimeans voted to become a part of Russia. Was this vote legitimate? Well, it depends on who you ask. For Putin, this was Crimea's liberation. For the rest of the world, this was Crimea's annexation. The focus then shifted to eastern Ukraine, where Russia-backed separatists had seized territory. Ukrainian forces did not launch an all-out offensive at first, but on the 17th of July 2014, when a flight carrying 298 people was shot down by these rebels, Ukrainian forces decided to flush out the rebels. The separatists began losing ground, so the Russian army stepped in. They invaded eastern Ukraine and fought alongside the rebels. What followed was a series of talks between Russia, Ukraine and the West. They resulted in the Minsk Accords. This was first signed in 2014. Both sides agreed on ceasefire and military withdrawal. Ukraine agreed to hold elections in the rebel-held areas. Eight years on, the Minsk Accords remain unimplemented. Ukraine stands as the largest European country excluding Russia. It covers an area of more than 600,000 square kilometers with a population of 44 million and a GDP of more than $155 billion. Per capita income, more than $3,700. Today, Ukraine is divided between East and West in more ways than one. The West sees itself as more European. The East is closer to Russia be it in terms of geography or sentiment. In the West, most Ukrainians speak Ukrainian. In the East, a third are native Russians. In the West, Russia is looked at with suspicion. In the East, Russia is looked at through the lens of shared history and heritage. Ukraine also remains at war. Its forces are fighting the rebels in the East. Rebel leaders are ruling at least two regions, Donetsk and Luhansk. Together, they're known as the Donbass region. Russia has once again sent its troops. This time, they're stationed right at the border. What does Vladimir Putin want? For NATO to stop expanding, NATO stands for North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It's a military alliance. These countries are the founding members of NATO. These countries 
joined it during the Cold War, and these countries joined after it. Ukraine wants to join NATO too, but Putin wants NATO to exclude Ukraine and every former Soviet state. And this is just half the story. Like I said, a lot is hidden in history. For starters, there is domestic politics. When Putin annexed Crimea, his approval rating skyrocketed. Keeping the nationalistic drum rolling helps the Russian president. Annexing parts of Ukraine also helps Putin restore Russia's superpower image. Again, back to history. Many Russians view Ukraine's independence as a mistake. It is true that Ukraine was ruled by Russia. In fact, Ukraine has barely remained independent pre-1991. There was a brief period before World War I and then another stint in 1600. For the rest of its modern history, Ukraine was under Russia. One in six Ukrainians is an ethnic Russian. One in three speaks Russian as a native language. So Putin is right when he says historically they were one. But claiming Ukraine on the basis of colonial history is wrong. It will be like Britain claiming India or South Africa or Spain claiming the Philippines. Past imperialism cannot justify present-day expansionism. Here's what else history tells us. Ukraine was forcefully Russified. Cut to 1700, Russian leader Catherine the Great started Russifying Ukraine. Ethnic Russians were shipped to this part of the world. Schools were told to teach Russian language. By 1800, the Ukrainian language was banned. In 1930, Soviet leader Joseph Stalin steered a famine in Ukraine. Millions of Eastern Ukrainians were killed. The area was then repopulated with ethnic Russians. In the 1940s, the ethnic Tatars were relocated. They too were replaced with Russians. There is a reason why Eastern Ukraine today has so many native Russian speakers. It was designed to be that way. Eastern Ukraine was always dear to Russia. It has coal, it has iron, fertile land. Its historical connection with Russia was forced. Putin time and again talks about the Holy Rus. He says Russians and Ukrainians are one people. 70% Ukrainians reject this thought. 72% consider Russia a hostile state. Today, 33.3% Ukrainians are ready to take up arms against Russia. 21.7% are ready to stage a civil resistance against Russia. 67% Ukrainians want to join the EU. 59% want to join the NATO. Meet the current Ukraine. Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky. He came to power in 2019 following a landslide victory. He's a vocal critic of Russia. Zelensky openly opposes Russian occupation of eastern Ukraine. 73% of Ukrainian voters voted this man to power. Today, Volodymyr Zelensky represents the pulse of Ukraine, the Ukraine that wants to remain independent of Russia. But Vladimir Putin wants to become the man who revived Russian imperialism. He does not realize the world has moved on. Okay, that was from Gravitas Plus. Uh, it's a few days old now, but it's quite a good kind of summary of the history. Uh, I'm just looking for clips, so I'm going to keep looking, see what's there. Short clips, hopefully will shed a bit of light on the situation.
So this next clip is the BBC. It's quite uh, recent. It's a couple of hours old. Until early this morning, some here in Kiev doubted that he would do it. Not anymore. The West warned Vladimir Putin was about to attack. He said he had no such plans. That fiction now utterly exposed. Explosions right across this vast country. In Ivano-Frankivsk, in the far southwest, a missile struck an airport. Unverified images from Ukraine's northern and southern borders seem to show columns of Russian armor entering from Belarus and Crimea. Within hours, Russian tanks were reported to be on the streets of Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv. Whatever Russia says, this attack will not be surgical. To the east of Kharkiv, emergency workers battle to control fires in residential buildings hit by rockets. The number of civilian casualties is rising. Mariupol in the south, another airport on fire. This country's civilian infrastructure is being heavily struck. There are no more flights in or out. A glance at the map shows a country under attack from east to west, north to south. Earlier, a snarling Russian leader said this was all in self-defense and warned Ukrainians to lay down their arms. We will strive for the demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine. Russia cannot feel safe, develop and exist with a constant threat emanating from the territory of modern Ukraine. In Kiev, Ukraine's embattled president, who must now fear for his job, appealed to the world. Putin started a war against Ukraine, against the whole democratic world. He wants to destroy my country. He wants to destroy our country, everything we have been building, what we live for. So far, all the signs are that this attack is working out exactly the way Western leaders have been warning for weeks. The country is being attacked from all directions, and the fear now has to be that some of those Russian troops are heading here to the capital. Some people aren't waiting to find out what happens next. The roads out of Kiev jammed with traffic, most of it heading west. These people don't want to be liberated by Vladimir Putin after weeks of extraordinary calm. This suddenly looks like panic. Mid-morning and two jets fly over the city. It's not clear whose, but it seems only a matter of time before Russia controls the air and much besides. Paul Adams, BBC News, Kiev. Well, people here in Kiev woke to the sound of air raid sirens up above as citizens who long prayed for peace now had to face war. My colleague Nick Beek has been gauging the thoughts of some of the people here to the extraordinary unfolding events. The invasion, the attack that Russia promised would never happen has now started and the Ukrainian government is urging people to stay calm and it's appealing to the international community to stop President Putin now. We soon find Lana and her mum. Russia forced them from their home in Crimea eight years ago. Now they're on the move again. It's very, very nervous and uh, I'm very scared but uh, I, I, uh, 
Russia might be strong. After the overnight attacks from the skies, many are taking refuge underground. Well, this feels like one of the safest places in the city today, not just because there are lots of soldiers about, but because the metro is doubling up as a bomb shelter. And overnight families have come down here. They're trying to follow the news of what's happening, and they're trying to work out what they're going to do next. Two-year-old Yegor is still smiling, but his mum and dad are worried. Eight bombs. Eight bombs. Eight bombs. Eight bombs. Eight bombs. Eight bombs. I'm very, very scared for my boy, Alexander says. Then both parents ask, where are NATO to help us? When the bombs started falling, sales manager Mark helped his neighbors leave their homes. He tells me he's now ready to fight on the front line and die for his country. It's only one way uh, to uh, serve our uh, country, our uh, children, our mothers, and uh, defend our country from, uh, from Russian occupation. Uh, and uh, we will fight uh, all day. Many are fearful of what will come next, among them Alexei. If Russia will occupy Kiev, which I don't believe happen, because they believe in our army, well, it will be like uh, another Nazi occupation. It's still eerily quiet here in the heart of the capital. It seems many have followed government advice to stay at home. Lots of people will have also heard Russia's claim that it carried out targeted strikes on the Ukrainian military. I've got to tell you, people here are saying it doesn't feel like that to them. Instead, they feel that they're under attack and that President Putin has declared war on them. Nick Beek, BBC News, Kiev. The view from here in Ukraine. Well, what about Russia? In an address on state television, Vladimir Putin claimed his country had been left no choice but to defend itself against what he suggested were threats from modern Ukraine, and that Moscow would try to what he called denazify this country. From Moscow, Steve Rosenberg. From the president of Russia, a fateful decision. Vladimir Putin said military operation, but really, the Kremlin was launching a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Russian stocks plunged. The ruble hit an all-time low. Fears of conflict superseded by the shock of a war and what may come next. I think that if Putin is not stopped now in Ukraine, this war... Uh, would be the beginning of the Third World War. Vladimir Putin comes across now as a leader with an almost messianic idea to force Ukraine back into Moscow's orbit, even if that means war. What the public might think about that doesn't come into it. He seems determined to achieve his goal. In the center of Moscow, we're against the war, she says, and we want the whole world to know that. But so far, few Russians have come out to protest. Maybe this is why. In Russia now, protests end like this. I'm sorry, I'm so shocked. <laughs> I just can't help crying. I think that most of Russians don't support this. It's horrible. 
and why don't they support it? Because uh, it's uh, not our war, it's war Putin, Biden or anyone else, but not our nation. I think the Ukrainian soldiers will surrender, she says, and they should. It's terrible to be at war with Ukraine. This is not a conflict the Russian public wants. This is the Kremlin's war. Steve Rosenberg, BBC News, Moscow. Let's talk to our... All right, I'm going to stop that there, I think. Uh, that's been about half an hour, so I'll do another show later on this evening uh, and pick out some more some more clips. I'll, I'll probably do half an hour this evening as well. Uh, it seems reasonable to do, to do a show at about 4 o'clock and then one about 8, my time. So three and a half hours. We'll see what happens in the next three and a half hours. Thanks for listening, folks. Thanks for being around. And thanks to the people who came in into the, the studio. Um, I'll see you again in about three and a half hours' time.